Listener Production. It's hard to believe that this time last year we were still going through waves of Omicron and tensions about COVID lockdowns and vaccines were still extremely high. I think the exhaustion and the desire to get back to normal life meant that any debate about vaccines in particular got very heated very quickly. And someone who knows that all too well is the street artist Scott Marsh. So he's painted the famous Tony Abbott and George Pell murals on the streets of Sydney, which made him a hero of the left. But when he came out about his experience with pericarditis, he was slammed. It was horrible because you got people who... Like, I saw people in the comments there that have followed my work for years that have been really supportive, basically turning on me because I've got sick. In this episode, we'll hear Scott Marsh's story and then get the statistics on how common vaccine injury actually was now that we have more data and the debate has become a lot calmer. Vaccine injury, that is our briefing. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Thursday, the 20th of April. The Reserve Bank is set to get a major shake-up with the results of a review commissioned last year to be handed down today. The key recommendation is to create a new monetary policy board to set rates, and instead of the current nine-member board, this would involve a wider range of economic and labour market specialists. The Albanese government is expected to announce in-principle support for all 51 recommendations. Yeah, so this is the long-awaited review that um, started happening after that um, embarrassing error, quoting the RBA governor himself, where he said rates wouldn't go up until 2024. So they've had a look at how they could do it differently. And as you said, the major recommendation is to set up a new monetary policy board to set rates, but it's still going to stick with the same interest rate targeting strategy, which means they set rates with the goal of keeping inflation within that band of 2 to 3%. So Given we're keeping the same strategy, I'm not sure how much difference it will make to have a few extra experts chiming in on the rates decision each time. Well, another point of difference is that the board members will now have access to RBA staff so that they can sort of tap into their expertise and brainstorm and do their own modelling rather than what they currently do, which is rely on one sole briefing pack ahead of each meeting. And this is also the first independent review of the RBA um, in, God, since the early 1980s. And I reckon a big change is that they're not going to wait another 40 plus years before reviewing it again. And Australia's first electric vehicle strategy has been announced. We want people of all walks of life, regardless of where they live, regardless of their income, to have the chance to consider buying an electric vehicle. That's Chris Bowen. He's the Minister for Energy and Climate Change. So the plan's expected to create extra choice uh, for, you know, which EV you can get, a reduction in transport emissions. They're working on better charging facilities and increasing local manufacturing and recycling of materials from electric vehicles. They'll also bring in a fuel efficiency standard, um, which requires car makers to meet certain emissions limits. And that's a really interesting part of it, because yes, we want to incentivize the use of EVs and also you know, improve the facilities, but this will help to de-incentivize the purchase of high-polluting petrol cars. And Greens leader Adam Bant has said the government's missed an opportunity to include a target for both the uptake of electric vehicles and also a phase-out date for petrol and diesel vehicles. I'm I'm with Adam Bant there on the target. So, but the, the good news is there are more options in in 2023 in terms of buying an electric vehicle. And we just heard Chris Bowen say 
making it, you know, more affordable or regardless of their income, but they're still pricey. Like if mm. there are a couple of options just under $50,000, like the MG and the BYD Atto, I think there needs to be a bigger range with a much smaller price tag for real uptake. Otherwise, it's just, it's just too expensive to consider for many people. Yeah, I think so. It is taking a while for those prices to come down, isn't it? To think that, say, you know, BYD, which is a, a Chinese car that no one's ever heard of until quite recently, is still right up there. When you compare that against, you know, reliable, well-loved brands of relatively efficient petrol cars, it's still a, a tough call for many people, isn't it? Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has slammed independent Senator Lydia Thorpe for her actions outside a strip club in Melbourne on the weekend. These are not the actions of anyone who should be participating in in society in a normal way, uh, let alone a senator. That's the PM talking to 2SM Radio. And Senator Thorpe issued a statement over the weekend saying, it's sad people are using whatever they can to drag me down when we're trying to discuss important issues in this country. Tom, I know that the exchange was unprofessional. It was expletive laden. I just wasn't sure what the Prime Minister was suggesting there when he said that not the actions of anyone who should be participating in society. He also said in a normal way. So he's saying, you know, no one should be out the front of a strip club saying someone's got a, a small penis and swearing at them, let alone a senator. So he's saying that behaviour's inappropriate for anyone, but especially inappropriate for a senator. Yeah, fair point. I mean, Thorpe claimed she was provoked and that the men had targeted her because of her advocacy on Indigenous issues. But yeah, I guess there's no excuse for anyone to be to be swearing or making comments about people's genitalia. Well, yeah, and to, for her statement to say she was she's trying to discuss important issues in the country, I don't know if she meant she was discussing important issues right in that moment or if she means in, in general with the arguments she's making. But um, any arguments she was making in that moment probably weren't very productive. A much-loved Catholic priest and social justice campaigner, Father Bob Maguire, has passed away aged 88. Um, he was well-known for his great sense of humour and also opinions that put him at odds with the Catholic Church. The Pope's playing cricket, for God's sake. But they won't have women priests, but they'll have women cricketers. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wish to God they'd become more what a, realistic, you know what I mean, and, and get involved in the real world. Yeah, so he became a priest at just 25 and became known as the People's Priest. He was a huge figure, particularly in Melbourne. He founded the Father Bob Maguire Foundation in 2003, helping to try and end homelessness. And he was working as part of that foundation as the chairman until just five days ago. Absolute legend. I'm a huge fan of Father Bob. He's He also had a really solid media profile and career hosting a radio show with John Saffron on Triple J as well as a TV show on SBS. Uh, he's also a hilarious and prolific Twitter user. He had 125,000 followers and no surprise that he's currently trending on Twitter. Uh, and of course, the tributes are coming thick and fast. High profile refugee advocate Baru Bashani said he's a great man, warm heart, always stood with refugees despite political attempts to make them invisible. And New South Wales Premier Minns said, our nation just lost a hero. And India's population is set to overtake China's by July. Um, it will be 2.9 million above its neighbour. It's going to get to 1.4 billion, according to the UN. Um, those two countries combined account for more than a third of the world's population. And Tom, a really interesting part of this is that China's population actually went down last year by nearly a million people. Mm. 
Yeah, so China's population is going down as their birth rate stays really low. It is the first time it's gone backwards since 1961. So, of course, they had the one-child policy, which ended in 2016. But it's just this bigger trend of urbanisation where people who live in cities are less likely to have as many children because it's really unaffordable. So China's going to keep going backwards. It's expected to decline by 100 million people between now and 2050. Um, India's birth rate is, is higher, but it's also coming down. So these are really interesting macro trends to, to keep an eye on. And of course, India is becoming more and more important to Australia, both politically, but also for our population. Um, within five years, India will overtake England as the most common place of birth for Aussies outside of Australia. Yeah, that is really interesting too. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again soon. I'm about to go deep on vaccine injury. Right, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Scott Marsh is pretty much Australia's Banksy, but the Aussie artist is even more politically overt than the UK legend. He's painted all kinds of murals from George Michael to Kanye to Adam Goods, but some of his most famous work was taking the piss out of right-wing figures like Tony Abbott, George Pell and Gina Reinhart. In April last year, he lost a lot of fans, but also gained some new ones. It was a very painful time. He made a post on Twitter and Instagram that said, Thoughts go out to everyone caught up in this wave of myocarditis, pericarditis from the mRNA vaccines and from COVID. It's an effing nightmare and it's destroying people's lives. Following that message, there were the hashtags COVID-19 and hashtag no vaccine mandates. Now, the comments on those posts got ugly pretty quickly. And then there was a pedestrian article titled, Scott Marsh has suddenly pivoted to posting questionable vaccine tanks. So one year on, he's here to tell us about the whole experience of having pericarditis and the backlash to that post. Now, pericarditis is an inflammation to the outer lining of the heart. We're also going to speak to an infectious diseases doctor for the facts on vaccine injury now that we have a year's more data. First, here is Scott Marsh. So it's been a year since the big outrage over your comments about vaccines, where you talked about your experience of having pericarditis. Let's talk about the experience first. What did you go through? Uh, well, I'm still going through it, to be honest with you. Um, I haven't fully recovered. It's been a year and a half, I think, now. Um, I'm kind of at the point now where I can do most things, but if I st try and do cardio or exercise, for example, I get a huge relapse in my symptoms. Okay, so what were the symptoms at their worst? Um, well, at their worst, it kind of went through different phases. So I couldn't stand up for more than five minutes. Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk more than 100 metres without getting like insane palpitations that felt like I was getting struck by lightning and I was having a heart attack. I wow. basically couldn't do anything. I could just sit at home and feel like I was having a heart attack 24-7. I couldn't walk upstairs. I couldn't do anything. Okay, so a month after getting the vaccine, you actually got COVID. Did that make the symptoms worse? Yeah, it did. My heart stuff got a little bit worse, the kind of the pressure, and then I had like a, it felt like someone scratching my heart with a toothpick or something. Ooh. That scratch turned into like from a toothpick to a needle. Like it was like a sharp, stingy scratch. And by this stage, people were talking about 
hard stuff. You know, in the early days, it was like blood clots, blood clots, blood mm, clots. You know, TTS. Yeah, so I was like, uh, I didn't know anything about the heart stuff. Um, by this stage, though, people were talking about it and the heart stuff had got worse and I'd been playing it off as, you know, oh, maybe it's my ribs from boxing or maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So I went to a cardiologist. First cardiologist told me to take another vaccine. Um, so then I went to another cardiologist who said, yeah, I'm pretty sure you got pericarditis. We're seeing heaps of it. Um, but he also didn't give me much help in terms of information and treatment and everything. So I've, eventually I found another cardiologist who was really good, gave me a lot of information, um, put me on the traditional kind of protocol, which is colchicine and these other anti-inflammatories to like get the inflammation down. And officially gave you the diagnosis. Yeah, and gave me the diagnosis of pericarditis. Okay, so let's talk about the post that got you the big backlash. Thoughts go out to everyone caught up in this wave of myocarditis, pericarditis from vaccines and from COVID. It's a nightmare and it's destroying people's lives. Hashtag COVID-19, hashtag no vaccine mandates. So tell us about what made you want to say that. I imagine you knew it would create a bit of backlash, but you felt it was important to say. Yeah, I thought it was really important to say. Um, I'd been going through what I'd been going through and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking I'm the super unlucky guy, you know, the one in a million person who got a vaccine injury because that's what I was told. My GP told me when I went to speak to him before I got the vaccine, he told me one in a million chance. Mm. So rare, it's never going to happen. So I was thinking it was really rare and I just met another guy at a wellness centre that I was getting some treatment and stuff at. Um, who had the same issues as me, actually much worse. And then he put me into some of the online communities of other injured people. And all of a sudden I was like, there are thousands of people here and we all have the exact same story of being gaslit by the medical institution telling us that there's nothing wrong with this, it's just anxiety, um, not being able to speak about it and not getting any help at all. I'd also just spoken to my cardiologist who basically told me he's... 50% of his patients were now under 40 with my pericarditis, which is huge. And he was also telling me that when he gets a wave of COVID, he gets a wave of new patients. If there's a vaccine rollout, he gets a wave of new patients. So was that the, was the word wave, because that's probably one of the, the controversial parts of the post, is how you define a wave, uh, what data goes into that definition. Is that the language the cardiologist was using? That's the way I was definitely reading it. You know, if you're getting a heap of new patients every time, you can call it a wave, you can call it a bag, or you can call it whatever you want. Okay, so what did you make of the backlash you got? Obviously, one of the most noticeable parts was the, the pedestrian article. Scott Marsh has suddenly pivoted to posting questionable vaccine tanks. What did it feel like to read that? It was really horrible because, you know, I was in a horrible place. Like I felt like I was dying. Every day I felt like I was having a heart attack. I couldn't walk upstairs, couldn't walk downstairs. I couldn't, I couldn't really do anything. And it was horrible because you got people who, like I saw people in the comments there that have followed my work for years that have been really supportive. Pedestrians, one of those as well, they've been really supportive of my work, basically turning on me because I've got sick. And I'm trying to, you know, just offer support to other people in my situation. That was the point of the post was, hey, if you're out there and you're sick, I'm with you. You can't speak to anyone else. And I got about half a dozen people reach out to me privately who were in my sphere, like people I knew and some Mm. close friends that also had issues that they weren't speaking about that I had no idea about. Mm. 
particularly a couple of artists, exactly the same thing. They've been going through it for a year and they're too scared to talk about it online because of backlash and because of the amount of censorship on social media. Like you will get shadow banned and you will lose followers and reach and all the rest of it if you talk about it. Do you think things have changed now? It's a year on. Do you think it's more acceptable to raise these questions and there's, you know, less public backlash and slamming for anyone that does? Uh, Yeah, well, there's just so much more information available now. Everyone I speak to has a story about a family member or a friend. And so the TGA data has revealed that 14 people have died uh, related to vaccine injury, one of them from myocarditis. Mm -hmm. What does that say to you about the level of, you know, serious harm from the vaccine? Well, that's 14 people that shouldn't have died, but it's also where they're getting their data. So... you believe the TJ data is a massive underrepresentation of the real harm? I don't know because I haven't dived into it and I'm obviously not a doctor, you know. I paint, <laughs> I paint pictures for a living. I know that there are thousands of people that are injured just in within people that are within reach of me. That's Scott Marsh, who is still struggling with his heart problems from pericarditis. Um, let's put his personal story in context by finding out more about the data on vaccine injury and death in Australia. Dr. Paul Griffin is the Director of Infectious Diseases at Marta Health in Brisbane. Paul, thank you for joining us. How common is Scott's experience of having pericarditis after receiving a vaccine? It was actually quite rare and some of the things people need to understand to have the right context around this discussion is that we actually gave a really large number of vaccines. So we've administered more than 65 million doses of COVID vaccines in our country now. So an adverse event that happens rarely will still be seen in significant enough numbers that a lot of people know someone who's had that or have heard of someone who's had it. And so it seems like it's happening more commonly than it truly is. Okay, so when you look at the totals and you've supplied these figures to us for myocarditis and pericarditis, for myocarditis, there was 1,400 cases related to Pfizer and 200 to Moderna. So about 1,600 cases of myocarditis um, related to vaccine injury. Um, In pericarditis, we're looking at 2,800 related to Pfizer, 300 for Moderna. So a total of around about 3,100. So... Add them together, 1,600 plus 3,100, that's 4,700 cases roughly of myocarditis and pericarditis. Do you think it was fair for Scott to describe that as a wave? Because that is a significant number of people. Yeah, we did see see those numbers as you outlined. I guess that was in the context of us having a, a very big rollout of the vaccine. So, you know, as I mentioned, we know these complications can occur. They occur at relatively low incidents in terms of the number of doses given. But given we vaccinated most of the country in a short space of time, we did see that sort of a number of those complications occur in a relatively short space of time. Mm. So I can see how it would be thought to be be a wave. But I think that just really reflects the denominator, the, the rollout of the vaccine and the fact that we know these complications occur at a low rate from these vaccinations. And so for people that got pericarditis and myocarditis, What were the most likely outcomes? How bad was it? I think that's a really important point because for the vast majority of people, they recover spontaneously with no specific intervention and no lasting effects. 
proportion of people will have symptoms that might last a little bit longer in the vicinity of, of weeks, but even those people should still expect a full recovery. We've had one case where we think uh, it was likely the cause of someone not surviving. So we've had 14 deaths that have been thought to be related to vaccines in our country. 13 of those were to do with the AstraZeneca vaccine, mm. mostly from that rare clotting phenomenon known as TTS. And one of those deaths is thought to be related to a severe case of uh, myocarditis. So out of those 65 million doses we've given now, there seems to be one death that's been related to that mechanism. That was Associate Professor Dr Paul Griffin from Marta Health and the University of Queensland. And I've got to say I am very happy that that intense period of COVID and all the arguments that came with it is over. But of course, I do feel for anyone who's still struggling with any kind of health problem, either from COVID or the relatively smaller proportion of people struggling with vaccine injuries. Also feel for anyone feeling the psychological trauma of spending way too much time online for about two years. Listener.